You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Global Institute. Hello and welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. Why do some countries develop economically while others remain poor? Is economic development determined by geography or demography? Is it even possible without democracy? And what's the role of free market principles, whatever those might be? To answer these questions, I caught up with the co-authors of a new report from the McKinsey Global Institute entitled Outperformers, High-Growth Emerging Economies and the Companies that Propel Them. Jonathan Wetzel is a McKinsey partner based in Shanghai, and Anu Madgavkar is a partner based in Mumbai. For this conversation, I was lucky enough to catch up with them both in New York. So, uh, Anu, Jonathan, thanks for being here today. It's great to be here. Thank you, sir. Great to be here. Thanks. The obvious first question is, who are the outperformers? So, uh, we essentially looked at over 70 emerging economies, and we set a threshold of, uh, you know, which economies have actually delivered sustained per capita GDP growth over long periods of time. Uh, And over 50 years, this is actually a set of just seven economies, which includes uh, China, South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, and then a set of economies in Southeast Asia, which is Malaysia, Indonesia, and Thailand. Uh, So these seven did it over 50 years. And then there's another set of 11, which actually delivered high growth over a shorter period of about 20 years. All of those seven are clustered in Asia. They're kind of names we know, but they're all in Asia. So is there a sense in which geography is destiny? Is that part of the message? Uh, Well, it's interesting to look at the recent outperformers, which is the set of 11 that actually took off and delivered growth over the last 20 years, because that's actually a more diversified set. Uh, You do have uh, countries in Southeast Asia there, like Vietnam and Cambodia. You do have India. Uh, And then you have a set of countries which are actually in Central Asia, which is Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and so on. Uh, and then one African economy. So there is a bit more of regional or geographic diversity in that set. Uh, but it probably is true that there are uh, you know, strong advantages of having growth taking off in the form of, let's say, a big anchor economy or an economy that leads in a region. So we have seen some of that, but growth has actually been more diversified uh, in the last 20 years. And in Asia, presumably that's China. China is the big anchor economy, and there is a sense in which some of the other economies have been able to sort of go on the coattails of China. Is that right? Well, China trade, uh, China South, China North trade has been actually the fastest growing piece of global trade. So it's uh, it's clearly one of the, it is an anchor, as you say. Uh, but more broadly, we do see that this is uh, there is an approach to growth. There is an approach to outperformance, which is uh, common to these uh, East Asian and uh, economies, but is, it is more than that. It goes beyond borders, and it's something that any country really can achieve. Um, so that's the message, is that you know, there's an approach and there's, a, there's an agenda uh, which is open to all. So let's double-click on it. Uh, having an anchor economy close by is helpful, but there is a sort of recipe here. There's commonality across you know, countries that ach- achieve growth over the long term. What's the recipe? Well, we think it has uh, two parts, and so let's talk about the uh, the policy, which I'm, I'm hesitant to call policy, but it's the agenda, sort of the, the things that we all agree on in an outperforming economy. And essentially, the main thing is we agree on growth. 
And it's quite, su quite surprising in some cases that some economies do not agree on growth. And they're, they're sort of apparently not well aligned. But in a high performing economy, what we see is an alignment around productivity, income, and demand. Uh, that these are the three aspects that drive economic growth. Productivity to enable better uh, resource allocation decisions, uh, income to create a return of that productive investment to the people who created it, the workers or the, the investors and the shareholders, and demand being the reinvestment of, those, of that income into new, product, new productivity. So these things go together, productivity, income, and demand. Uh, and that is the first and most important, perhaps, uh, you know, takeaway from why these economies outperformed. They agreed on that, and they created policies and mechanisms to support that. And the second thing we note is that large competitive global companies are a hallmark uh, of these outperforming economies. Now, we can argue whether it's causal or correlated, but we can, uh, we can certainly say that it has to be there, <laughs> that we need to see large globally competitive companies emerging to 50, 60% revenue as a share of GDP or 40% value added as a share of GDP in order for us to see an outperforming economy. So, I mean, those two things, a pro-growth agenda and uh, globally competitive companies. And I think these two things are not just uh, sort of the common features that we saw across these outperformer economies, but also went hand in hand. So just like Jonathan said, it's not clear which was the cause and which was the effect, but there was something like a... Uh, a sort of a shared vision that was created around the idea of the importance of growth, the importance of creating a climate in which savings and investment could happen and that these companies could actually invest, uh, accumulate capital, build productive capacity, open up to the rest of the economy. And, and, and this, I, I think it did take some doing. This is not something that happened automatically or naturally or easily, perhaps but with a concerted set of actions that actually had policymakers sitting with companies, with the private sector, charting out what could be done, let's say, to drive up exports in a certain sector or economy-wide, uh, and then really following a shared agenda around that, right, with the right incentives in place. So a fairly concerted set of actions to bring these sort of multiple different actors together I know we don't want to get too deep in, into policy making. It's up to the countries to decide clearly. But what are the sort of common levers around something like encouraging a savings rate, a high savings rate within an economy and capital accumulation? What are some of the things that we see consistently across high growth economies? Well, I think you put your finger, first of all, on a very important one, which is savings rates and, sort of, and, and the ability to mobilize savings, which implies two things. One is a belief in the value of those savings, that the savings will go to create some future wealth in store. And the second is the security of those savings, that those savings are not something that you have to keep under your mattress at home, but you will actually put into a bank account. So, you know, the, so the policy, first of all, is to create the financial system that allows that. So you have to have financial inclusion. You have to have some type of a very broad-based financial network that allows for everybody, farmers to workers to you know, rich and poor, to have a, a capacity to have security against those deposits and uh, in whichever way. And then you need to have a way of ensuring that what is those that savings is used for can ultimately create value. And so that's the, the, the 
uh, return on that investment is usually, that's where you see the takeoff in manufacturing. So the ability to start small scale manufacturing enterprises, which uh, have access to marketplace. Uh, you see investments, of course, in real estate. And sort of, so the ability to secure title and sort of see that the, there's a, a medium term opportunity for you to get this money back. So you're willing to put the investment in the, into, the, into the savings vehicle. So it boils down to saying, yes, we have to have a broad based financial network. And we have to have the security for the investor. Uh, those two things add up to uh, 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 an incentive to save. And uh, without those, we have, of course, seen very low savings rates. And those are characteristics of the non-outperformers. One of the myths, I think, about emerging economies is that, uh, you know, a lot of the investment is led by FDI. So FDI if, being foreign direct investment. Foreign direct investment, absolutely. Uh, and while that is true, FDI has played an important role, particularly in bringing sort of new know-how and new technology and linking, you know, local companies to global markets. Uh, but just in terms of quantum of capital accumulation, it's really domestic savings that dominate across all the cases that we've seen. So there is no substitute in the medium to long term uh, to build the kind of uh, financial institutions, the trust, the credibility, financial inclusion, you know, deepen your domestic savings and investment markets. And there really is no substitute for doing that. If I could add one other that I think is just incredibly important is this is the productivity aspect of policy. And so in productivity, sometimes it's uh, you know, thought of more as, uh, uh, first of all, a, a, an automation and a job uh, sort of uh, a cutting <laughs> mechanism. And I think that that, you know, for, of course, technological innovation and renovation is, is an aspect of it. But that's in turn impelled uh, by pro-competition policies. And it's actually pro the opening of market and the selective uses of everything from tariffs and quotas and reductions in them or uh, to uh, market uh, availability uh, mechanisms, sort of saying we allow for this market to be open to private in particular competition versus that one to be uh, not yet uh, available. I mean, these levers have been used very purposefully by the outperforming economies to gradually over time uh, open up and deregulate and create a uh, market-based economic benchmark. So we call it contested leadership. So that these, these markets feature uh, contests uh, for who will be the uh, leading company. And those, those contests are held on economic grounds, saying who can achieve a faster rate of coverage for your telecom network or who can uh, be more successful in an export market. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions about the, you know, the growth of large companies uh, in these economies. From the outside in, I'd say to myself, well, of course, you know, these are government selected, they're picking winners, these are protected, they're oligopolies. But actually, the, the research shows that's not the case, right? No, that's not the case at all, because per trillion dollars of GDP, so for the size of each of these economies, they have more companies in this half a, you know, uh, half a billion dollar plus revenue bracket that we consider large companies. So, so that's our definition, if you like, of a large company, just for the sake of argument, is half a million, half a billion, half dollars, a billion dollars of, revenue and, of above. revenue and above. So these outperformers have actually more such companies. And then, you know, there is more sort of dynamism or churn in terms of who the winners are. And we looked at this in terms of saying, well, uh, which are the companies that actually performed best in terms of economic profit generation, let's say 10 or 15 years ago? And of the companies that were leaders at that point, how many of them actually remained in the top quintile in terms of economic profit generation 10 or 15 years later? And what we found is that the rate of sort of dislodging of companies and new companies entering that leadership bracket was much higher 
in the outperformers compared to you know the advanced economies, for example. So there is this sort of this sense of creative destruction in action, basically. And if anything, more creative destruction than you might see among the top echelons among development. In fact, that's, that's, that's a great point, Simon. I think that we, we actually did then look at the firms themselves and see whether what we, what we can observe at the firm level in terms of their management practices and whether that would support this thesis that there was greater churn and more dynamism. And what we found, you know, interestingly enough, is that, yes, in fact, these uh, high-performing emerging economies feature large competitive companies that relative to their OECD counterparts are more digital, they're growing faster, they're investing faster, they have higher capital productivity, they have a high, higher rates of new product introduction. So, you know, these are actually real global contenders. We would contend that this, we see this as the birth of the new set of global competitors that uh, they, and if we look down the line in, you know, 10, 20 years, the majority of global competitors will be from emerging markets. And, and what's interesting about them is that they're not just looking at their own markets. So they are increasingly looking at the world as the place to play. And you have seen sort of very large multinationals coming out of some of these outperformers. And it's not actually just the outperformer economies. So you do see these high performance, high growth companies coming up in some of the non-outperforming economies too. So there are winners there as well. Uh, it's more a challenge of, you know, how, how can those economies sort of make the effort to scale up many more such companies, but you do have winners. Some really interesting stories, for example, one of the largest uh, uh, bakery brands in the U.S. is actually a Mexican company uh, that owns, I think, six out of 12 of the largest bread brands in the U.S., right? Or the Korean cosmetics companies which have gone global. So big global aspirations on the part of many of these companies, backed by some of the nimbleness and agility that Jonathan talked about in terms of investment. Just to make sure that I understand though, part of our argument is that the growth of, of large companies is something of a development economics lever. And maybe that's been underappreciated until now. Is, is that broadly what we're saying? I think we can say, first of all, it's, it's certainly a feature. Uh, and as a corporation, large corporations we know are important for exports so that they are you know, more capable of, a ch of tapping in historically to that demand, that improvements in the uh, performance of large companies leads to improvements in the performance of small companies, that there's a value chain which is associated with it, that they pay higher wages so it supports uh, income, uh, and uh, that there is a uh, more uh, use of R&D, higher levels of art research and technology investment. So all of this would say that this is a, a form of market-based organization, let's say, that does drive productivity, increases income, and, and, and supports demand. Uh, now, you know, not every company is as productive and as competitive as the leaders that we've seen in these outperforming economies. So companies in and of themselves, this may or may not lead you to those results. But the pro-growth agenda, which is, again, the policy side of the compact, the things that we believe about how an economy should work, combined with these entrepreneurial energies creates an outperforming economy. So are we essentially saying here that, you know, a free market set of policies, throwing the economy open to global competition, uh, letting big companies fend for themselves, is that the recipe that we see at work, or is it actually something a little more subtle? I think the governments in, in many of these outperformer economies have actually played a very active role. So I'm not sure we should characterize it as a purely 
laissez-faire or free market type of approach. I think there has been actually a large amount of effort put into sort of figuring out what aspects of you know global experience are actually relevant for the country that at that point in time. So there was, I think, while all these economies and policymakers actually did try to get the best thinking from the world, but I think there was equally a strong desire to sort of shape that and adapt that to the conditions which were prevalent, right? There was, I think, a lot of, you can almost call it, you know, uh, going back to the earlier point around savings, there was actually a, a fairly big role played by governments to almost do forced savings, uh, which is to create conditions in which capital was available relatively cheaply to companies, which may not have happened had it been a completely free market sort of system. So that's just one example where policies were adapted uh, and, and, and sort of uh, developed which were consistent with the stage of development of, of the economy at that point in time. And I, I think it's fair to say that many of these economies are still in the relatively early stages of their of their development, sort of moving from agriculture to, to urban and sort of from uh, into industri industrialization. And that and in that process, many times there's mar there's been market failure. There simply hasn't been private capital available to invest. And so government has taken up the slack in terms of fixed assets and infrastructure investments, economic development zones, and to some extent, the actual start development of what initially are state enterprises, and over time then privatizing or corporatizing them as the case may be. I do think there's a very, as, as Anu says, a very active government role here, both in all pieces of this, the productivity, the income, and the demand. But that said, I, I, I think that philosophy is clear. All of these economies have sort of embraced, if you will, market principles. Uh, in not only the uh, the operation of the market, but even in how government itself operates. And government itself it says, embraces this idea of contested leadership. Yes, and I guess from a sort of political economy angle, there's something here about government effectiveness. So, Anu, do you want to just say a little bit more about the importance of that? I think it's fair to say, first of all, that government effectiveness had less to do with, or little to do, I would say, with the form of government. We did find, uh, you know, a whole spectrum, I would say, of uh, different forms of government. And that wasn't a big differentiator between the outperformers and the other economies that hadn't actually achieved high growth. Amongst the outperformers, you do have sort of single, single party forms of government like China or Vietnam, for example. Uh, you do have democratic governments. And then, you know, you do have uh, India, which is actually a very diverse and very vibrant and some might say noisy democracy, right? So you have all these flavors. So it was not, I think, to do with the recipe in terms of, you know, how governments come into power or how they conduct themselves, but more, uh, you know, how, how they actually think about economic growth and development. And actually, that, frankly, is the focus of the research. We did not specifically look at questions of political effectiveness, human rights and issues like that. We focused much more on understanding government effectiveness in terms of economic policies. And, and certainly the form of government did not seem to be a differentiator there. So as far as we can tell, it's not true that only democracies can succeed. But by the same token, there's no reason to believe that, uh, you know, a noisy democracy such as India cannot succeed. Yeah, I think that was one of the very interesting findings, actually, that came out of this. I think that's the key point is that it's the trajectory that matters. It's the rate of improvement and that you start where you start. And so some of our more recent uh, economies are post, you know, civil war economies. So high, high levels of distrust and, and not, not much infrastructure. 
but the fact that they have improved the quality of their governance of their transparency and the level of, uh, levels of corruption have been reduced, uh, ease of doing business has increased, that in turn has created a lot, uh, has been a hallmark, we think, of creating the trust in turn that enables, uh, enables demand, actually. That's a direct tie to the savings rate again. I thought one of the very interesting findings in the report that jumped out at me is that this is the, the survey of senior managers. And in your average developing economy, a senior manager will, will spend more than 10% of their time working on government and regulatory issues. In our outperformers, it's only 5%. So that, that actually is just a sort of little micro uh, example of why this, this matters. It can bog down an economy. It is frankly work in process for all economies, including the outperformers. There's absolutely no room for complacence. And it is, uh, you know, capital will flow where uh, the, the enabling environment to deploy it productively exists, right? And this is as much a competition as anything else. So I would say that even for the outperformers, particularly for some of the recent outperformers where ease of doing business is still a journey, that little factoid or micro example should serve to kind of spur even more sort of reform in that area. So let's just talk a little bit about trade. We hear a lot about globalization stalling or in some cases moving into reverse. Clearly trade has been a very important lever uh, for our long-term outperformers. I think the question is, will it be uh, a big lever for outperformers in future? I think if you look back at the last seven to eight years, it's fair to say that at, at, at an aggregate level, so if you think about top line, total trade, uh, there seems to be this uh, you know, deceleration, right? It's flat, it's plateauing. People are concerned about the world going into deglobalization. But if you unpeel that onion a bit, I think the two trends that are notable within that is that not all forms of trade are actually declining or flattening. So trade in services is actually rising. All sorts of data flows and information flows, which indirectly enable trade in services, are skyrocketing, right? So, and of course, if you strip away the pure commodity piece of goods trade, the rest is actually demonstrating healthy growth as well. But the second piece of unpeeling the onion is to look at connections, trade connections, not necessarily with the advanced economies or the OECD countries, but also amongst emerging economies, which we call South-South trade, though not all these are in the Southern Hemisphere, but South-South trade is shorthand. Uh, if you look at cumulative trade within the emerging economies, I think that went up from something like 8% of global trade to 20% of global trade in the span of 10 to 12 years. So there is a rising growth there. There are these big economies like China, which have created, you know, value chains and are sourcing more from the rest of the emerging economies and also uh, potentially importing for domestic consumption as well. We've seen labor intensive exports from countries like Bangladesh, Cambodia, Vietnam, Uzbekistan, actually rising at the rate of 20 to 30 percent directed towards China. So in some ways, there is this opportunity for China to become a new sort of engine of consumption, which in turn uh, creates more opportunities for South-South trade. So another thing that struck me in the research is that there's not a lot in there that I read anyway around education. And I would have thought that sort of government investment in human capital and labor force would be a big policy lever for development. Do you just want to speak to that a little bit? I think relative to the role that capital and technology and productivity growth have played, uh, the role of 
quantity of labor to start with has been much smaller. So there is another myth that says emerging economies grow fundamentally because they have lots of people and you know populations are growing. Well, it's a demographic dividend. A demographic dividend. So that, that, that was certainly not the case. It was by far the sort of productivity growth uh, that, that, that dominated, right? That said, what we did find is that uh, as you look at a host of different indicators, uh, you know, the amount that government spends on educating its workforce did show up as reasonably important. But again, uh, because we start at different levels and some of these economies actually aren't that urbanized and don't have high levels of education. But what we did find is that successful companies and sometimes whole sectors uh, have actually figured out how to take you know, the labor supply that exists and actually upskill that labor supply to make it, you know, relevant and productive in the context of what you're doing. India's IT sector is a good example. We did have a lot of uh, tertiary educated people entering the sector, but companies have then figured out that to make them really employable and really productive, they did need to spend time and money actually upskilling them, and they figured out that solution. To build on what Anu was saying, that the uh, labor markets themselves, the flexibility and the inclusivity and the mobility that you have, that's really what uh, what, differ what differentiates uh, these outperforming economies' labor results or income results from the non-outperformers. It's how well they uh, include and they allow for everybody, whether you know, the farthest flung peasant to the inner city worker to get access to uh, a value chain, an industry, a, a competitive uh, sector, which then builds their skills. And so that, and that, that flexibility and sort of essentially allowing for uh, the, the geographic mobility, but also the cross-industry mobility uh, and that and the growth of new companies, the dynamism of the value chain, the opportunity for SMEs to, to um, spring up and to, to create more uh, employment opportunities. That's the kind of education that really matters. Uh, so the expenditures themselves, we didn't see a high correlation there. So looking to the future, if you think about like the, the next generation of, of outperformers, you know, who are they? Where should we look? Well, um, first of all, they're a far-flung lot. I mean, that we are now we we believe that we will see the growth of the outperforming economies spread to every continent, uh, and uh, that they are both large and small. So that uh, that there won't be a straightforward correlation based on uh, geography or size. Rather, it will again be driven by the uh, policy agenda, the pro-growth agenda, and the emergence of these globally competitive companies in emerging markets. So, I mean, I can. I can give away a few names, but uh, do <laughs> give away a few names. Yeah. But in our, and I think it, and it's all in the report. But I mean, for example, I mean, in even in, in Africa, of course, you know, Rwanda stands out as being an example of a, of a small country, one which has, had, has delivered the the GDP per capita growth, but also uh, recently, um, but also has a robust agenda, uh, robust agenda against these uh, this uh, this growth policies. I mean, and yeah, and you, you know, in, in even in Latin America, we see you know Bolivia starting to show recent outperformance, and you know the the right sort of in, uh, policies again an agenda in place. Now, with uh, with any of these types of predictions, of course, you know it's, it's just it's just that it's just a prediction. But I mean, what we base it on essentially is the recent GDP per capita growth and an assessment of the elements of their policy agenda. So that, those. Those are what we see as uh, as potential the next wave outperformers. Fantastic. Well, I think we're out of time for today. 
Um, but Anu and Jonathan, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks as always to you, our listeners. To download the report, outperformers, high growth emerging economies and the companies that propel them, and indeed to learn more about the work of the McKinsey Global Institute, please visit mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.